And I think it was Christine Laguerre I was talking to. We were like sitting, sitting in a talk and we were talking about research and she said something to the effect of, you have to find a cognitive paradox and then explain that paradox, right? And I, I don't know why, but that stuck with me. Like, you're right. That's kind of a fun thing to do. Like find something weird that humans do and try to explain it. And this is a cognitive paradox that, in my opinion, had not been adequately explained. Welcome back to Cognitive Evolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. So this week's guest is Colton Scrivener. Colton is a first-gen college student and one of the most impressive PhD students I've ever come across. His family is from Slaughterville, Oklahoma, and he did his undergrad and master's uh, in Oklahoma before beginning his PhD at the University of Chicago in their Department of Comparative Human Development. And uh, yeah, the, the thing that stands out about Colton is that he's carved out for himself this really fascinating area of specialization, morbid curiosity. And it's really cool to see him conceive of this academic niche and then to just go out there and position himself as the unequivocal world expert in it. He is under contract for Penguin Random House to write a trade book about morbid curiosity. Uh, and that's how I originally found him, uh, was, was through that announcement. But what I didn't know before our interview is that he also has a TV series in the works, which promises, uh, I believe this is a quote from our conversation, ghost hunts, uh, various locations, lots of haunted uh, areas out there. So at any rate, stay tuned for that. Uh, but just like all that as a PhD student, wow. Um, so in this conversation, I talked to him about... The story of, of, of how he goes from, you know, we talk about what his, what his family was like and he was the only one who's gone to college and going from that to just following his curiosity, his own interests in this incredibly devoted and committed sort of way and turning that into an expertise and how he's able to, you know, be so productive early in his career and, you know, we also talk about what his research has uncovered about why we're fascinated with death and horror and violence and all this sort of stuff. Uh, and then I'll also say that uh, I asked Colton for some recommendations about uh, which horror movies I should watch. It's a genre that I like, but not something I have any special expertise in. And uh, I watched his recommendation, The Autopsy of Jane Doe, later after our conversation. And uh, let's just say it lives up to the billing. So at any rate, um, uh, this was a, a fun conversation. It was super cool to hear about Colton's story, and I'm really excited to share it with everyone. So without any further ado, here is Colton Scrivener. So yeah, Colton, where, where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Slaughterville, Oklahoma. Slaughterville. Slaughterville, right? It's very fitting for what I study. Um, <laughs> yeah, very small town in Oklahoma. Uh, I grew up there and I went to undergrad and my master's in Oklahoma and then moved up to Chicago for my PhD. So tell me, tell me about Slaughterville. What is, <laughs> I, uh... <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not as, it's not as scary as it sounds. Um, you know, I think it was named after probably a, a farmer who maybe his last name was Slaughter, but, uh, not, a, not a, not a Texas chainsaw kind of thing. Um, yeah, it was just a very small town with, you know, one stop sign, no school, no post office. 
So, uh, do- so I, went, I went to school in the next town over. Um, Does all yeah. your family still live in Oklahoma? They do, yeah. Wow. And so you, your family has sort of like, that is, you are Oklahomans. You've been there for a, a long time and that is, that's where everyone's yeah. based. That's where everyone is, Oklahoma. Do you, do you, do you like living in Oklahoma? Uh, it has its pros and cons. Uh, I don't like living there in the summer because even though it's hot in Chicago right now, it's, it's much, much hotter in Oklahoma. So I don't miss that. Um, but yeah, it, it has its uh, nice sides, especially the city is uh, it's kind of growing now and becoming like bigger and having newer stuff. Um, and it's nice to be able to get out of the city very easily. There's no traffic ever. There are lots of parking lots, which there are none of in Chicago. Driving is not awful there like it is here. Um, so yeah, it, it has some some nice aspects to it. Yeah, that's cool. And then what about your what about your family? What do what do your parents do? That sort of thing. So my my dad is a boiler operator, um, and then my mom drives. What's a, what is a boiler operator? What's boiler sort of operator. O- what sort of operating do do boilers yeah. require? It's not something I, I unfortunately I, I don't think I'd say I'm very familiar with that. No, it's okay. So he's had this job like since I was a kid, and I'm still not sure exactly what he operates. Um, but <laughs> it's mostly like the the boilers and chillers in his case for the one of the hospitals. Um, that I think keep the, the hot and cold water you know, running. And I think he just makes sure that they stay running. And if something goes wrong, he tries to fix it. Yeah, fair um, enough. Yeah, so it's a lot of like supervising that more than direct operating. Yeah. Um, my mom has had like various jobs throughout the years. Uh, growing up, she just did lots of uh, different jobs. Um, I think right now she's she's driving uh, like a van for the, for the VA hospital and like, driving the patients to and from like their home to the hospital yeah yeah huh and um, i have a sister who is a mechanic oh, okay nice uh so you're the you're the family academic then i am a yeah first generation college student family academic that's funny that's cool um so yeah so you studied uh anthropology at oklahoma baptist university that was your undergrad anthropology uh, wh- and it re- really, though, I mean, I had just as many credits in, bi- in biology, mm. so it was a bit of both. I kind of mixed those two. Okay, yeah. Uh, so how did, how did you get interested in those? Like, what 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 drew you to that initially? Well, so I didn't really, again, being a first-generation student, I didn't really know anything about college. I applied to one school <laughs> uh, when I was in high school because a teacher told me I should apply there, so I applied. Um, and so I didn't really know. I mean, I, I enjoyed school. I did well in high school. I was very curious. It was very like, I, I think I wanted to go to college. I just didn't really know anything about it. And so when I got to college, I remember just like looking through uh, all the majors and just looked for one that sounded interesting. And so I think I actually landed on forensic biology to start with because it sounded really cool. Um, and I thought, oh, maybe I could do like psychiatry because I was very interested in the way people experience the world. You know, two people could experience the world in very different ways. And, and psychiatrists sort of tap into that. You know, they, they have patients who see the world and experience the world in a very different way than the person sitting next to them. And so I, I started out with forensic biology. I think I switched majors like 10 times in the first two years uh, because I would take a class in a different subject. And I, would, like, I went to a liberal arts school. And so I took a lot of classes in a lot of different things. And so I would take a class in a different subject and really enjoy it. I would just like add that major on or switch majors or or whatever. And so I, I think I started out as forensic biology and then I, I think I took an anthropology class. And I loved it. And so I, I 
was double majoring for a while in those two. And then I think I had for, for a hot minute, I had a philosophy major in there as well. <laughs> thrown into the mix. You got it. You got to have at least for a couple a couple weeks. Yeah, uh, contemplated yeah, yeah. Took an intro to philosophy class and loved that, so I threw that in there. I think I was psych also just for a second. I didn't even take any psych classes really. Um, I was just like, this stuff sounds like psychology. In fact, I took intro to psych and I hated it. I didn't like it at all. I thought it was very boring, and it was. Um, we we can talk more about <laughs> psych later. <laughs> I, I took intro to psychology. I thought it was very boring and I didn't like it at all. And I think I switched out of psych because of that. Um, yeah, I definitely I, got a B in my intro to psych class. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. I, 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 I was not I, a stellar I, intro to psych student. Yeah, it was mostly just memorizing all of these things that didn't seem to have a common story to them. And I just didn't find that very interesting. And it seemed like at the time, anthropology and philosophy in some ways, in biology really, uh, were giving me more interesting answers to why humans do what they do than psychology was. Um, and so I kind of just floated around in that area for a while and eventually got far enough along in my degree where I had to pick something. And anthropology I picked because it had the least amount of credits required so I could get the major in something I liked, but also have a lot of uh, extra credits that I could take in other areas. So I took a lot of philosophy classes, and um, biology classes, and chemistry classes, and so I could like kind of pick and choose my classes more with an anthropology major. And I think I ended up, you know, having as many or more bio biology credits than most biology majors. I just didn't take them in the sequence that was required for the, for the major. So at that point, what did you think you were doing? Did you have like, a, Oh, this is kind of the track that I'm on. It's cause it sounds like it was very bottom up curiosity driven and yeah. sort of playing the game like, yeah, I got to get a degree, but I want to do all the cool stuff and all that sort <laughs> That's of stuff. That's still what I'm doing. Right, which, <laughs> I, okay. Yeah, I'm still doing that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I, I played around with the idea of medical school for a while. I thought, oh, I'll do medical anthropology or something and do, some, you know, do something with that because I was still interested in psychiatry. And so I shadowed a few doctors, maybe my, I don't know, sophomore year or something. And it just, it was interesting and it was cool, but it was a lot of paperwork. And I, I just didn't think that I would stay interested in it. And I was more interested in, um, the research side of things. And there really wasn't a lot of research going on. Cause again, I was at a, you know, a liberal arts school, pretty much just undergraduate, very small. Um, and then we had a guest speaker in my, what was it? I think it was molecular biology class. This must've been my, maybe my junior year. And I went up to her afterwards and asked her if I could come like work in her lab and just work in her you know, as an intern or whatever. And um, I think at the time she, she didn't have any projects going on or something. I don't remember exactly what it was, but her husband worked at this molecular lab in the same building. Um, and so she talked to him and I ended up working for him over the summer doing some diabetic retinopathy work with mice, like doing surgery on mice and extracting things. It was really fun. I really enjoyed it. Um, and so I was like, okay, I'm really interested in why humans are the way they are, but I also really love molecular biology. And so I, around my junior or senior year, I started thinking more towards, okay, I want to do something with, um, ancient DNA. I was really interested in it. And this is, this is the time, this is like 2013, 2014. And this is when ancient DNA was just like taking off. Like Svante Pabo had just published, you know, the Neanderthal genome a year or two prior and there was kind of this explosion of ancient DNA work. And I was very, very interested in that. Um, and so that was kind of the path coming out of my undergraduate that I thought I was going to take. 
And so actually that's why when I went to grad school for my master's anyway, I ended up doing a forensic biology master's. So I ended up getting the forensic biology degree anyway that I started out with uh, just at the master's level. Um, but specifically, I was I was working with DNA. And the reason that I thought it would be a good idea was because in, you know, in forensic science, the DNA you find at crime scenes is often like degraded and it's pretty low copy number. There's not a lot of copies of it left behind if it's like on a fingerprint or a very small uh, bit of hair or something. And so I thought it would be a good way to kind of learn techniques that would be valuable for ancient DNA research, like as, as an intro to kind of into that field. And as it turned, and there were also other cool things with forensic science. I mean, it was fun learning how to do fingerprints and uh, different like rifling analysis and, and chemi like forensic chemistry was really cool. Um, but as it turns out, you know, maybe a year, a year or so into my two year masters, um, the ancient DNA field was just accelerating so rapidly that it quickly became um, highly specialized. So when I first got interested in that field, you know, the person who went out into the field and dug up the the bones was the same person who brought it back to the lab and analyzed it and like wrote up about it. So it's kind of all under one umbrella. And I really liked that. Um, and, you know, not even two years later, it had become so, because sequencing technology accelerates so quickly, it becomes so specialized that now you have people going into the field and excavating who are doing like, that's their job. And then there are people back in the lab who just do um, extraction and analysis. And so it has just become more spe um, specialized than I liked because I kind of wanted both of those things. And so I sort of fell out of, uh, sort, of it sort of fell out of my favor, I guess, a bit. Um, and around that time, I started reading a lot more human behavior books. And I thought like, oh, this is a really cool way for me to also study why humans are the way they are, but doing it, you know, just with a different lens. Um, and so I kind of gravitated towards the human behavior side of things. And that's how I landed where I am now. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So there's, there's definitely, uh, there's a lot in that and that sort of thing. Yeah. Sorry. There's okay, a lot so, there. No, thread through it, but there's a lot there. I guess what I'm, I'm, I'm curious about, uh, after that is, is, so how did you decide so one of the things that I that I am really drawn to about your work and that I, that I have a huge amount of respect for, and I like I just you know admire is that you have this very clear conception, at least from the you know sort of outside perspective looking at your work of what your niche is. You have your <laughs> uh, morbid curiosity kind of uh, center of gravity, and you've got stuff that's that, that's different than that, but it, you can kind of link it back to this one story of you know right. uh, uh, here here's this. So I'm wondering how that very concrete specific brilliant in a way because it is you know like it's a cool topic uh and you can own it you can uh you know be there that's it's just it's it's fantastic and for someone who's you know hasn't even finished their phd yet it's 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 kind of astounding it's it's awesome so i'm wondering how did that start to crystallize for you and how did that how did you begin to what did that how did that start to take form at this point yeah, when I, when I got to my PhD, I didn't really know, I didn't have a specific project in mind. I didn't even really, I mean, I, so my advisor has a hormone lab and I, I, I had done for my uh, bachelor's honors thesis, I had done this hormone anal hormone study basically for, for my capstone project or for my, my honors thesis. And so I had a little bit of experience with hormone stuff. I thought it was a very cool way to understand uh, human behavior from a biological perspective, and he had a hormone lab, my, my PhD advisor. And so I thought maybe I'll do something with hormones, but I don't know exactly what. Um, 
And so my first two years, I just spent a lot of time reading because I was still kind of new at that time to this general field, right? I had been more in like the molecular sciences for a while. And I had, I had some background in, the, in human behavior, but a lot of it really my, most of my knowledge was more in like molecular science. And, and so I, did, I spent a lot of time reading and trying to find things that I found interesting. Um, and I don't remember how I landed on fear exactly. I think I had maybe, I'd read an article, maybe, maybe it was Frank McAndrew's article on creepiness, on the psychology, on the nature of creepiness. I think that might've been, I read that and I was like, wow, this is so cool. And there's no work on it. And I very much, I'm not an incremental scientist. I don't like adding little pieces to the, I, it's very necessary and it's, it's good work and scientists who do it are, are probably doing uh, better stuff for science than, than not. But um, I just, I get bored with it, which is why I also fell out of favor with molecular science because it's just so specific, like small changes, small additions. And I really like doing sort of groundbreaking stuff. Of course, everyone, I guess, likes that, but I, I really enjoy a field that's nascent and doesn't have a lot of structure yet. Uh, and so I started reading more about the science of fear and I started thinking about, um, like, yes, people are creeped out by things and afraid of things, but sometimes people also seek those things out, right? Like I was a horror fan. And so I started thinking, you know, a lot of people actually seek out these experiences that are scary and that's kind of a, a weird behavior. Um, and it, where, where was I? I think my, must've been my second year of my PhD. I was at this really cool conference in Sicily and it was a conference on, I think, rituals, religion, and belief or something, the evolution of rituals, religion, and belief. And I met like a lot of people who uh, I high, like I admired highly, uh, Pascal Boyer and Joe Henrik, Paul Bloom, Christine Laguerre, like all these huge players in that field. Um, and I think it was Christine Laguerre I was talking to we were like sitting, sitting in a talk and we were talking about research and she said something to the effect of you have to find a cognitive paradox and then explain that paradox. Right. And I, I don't know why, but that stuck with me. Like, you're right. That's kind of a fun thing to do. Like find something weird that humans do and try to explain it. And I'd been thinking about this fear thing for a while or this violence thing that white people are interested in violence for a while. And, uh, I don't know. I guess I just latched onto that. Like, you're right. That's, that's a fun thing to do is to find something weird humans do find a cognitive paradox and try to explain it. And this is a cognitive paradox that in my opinion had not been adequately explained. Um, and so I started doing research on why people are interested in violence actually it was like my first sort of big research project. And I got some funding from, a uh, uh, the Neubauer Collegium at the university of Chicago, which is sort of its own separate, it's really more of a humanities entity, but they do some social science stuff. And so I put together this, this team of um, some social scientists and some humanities people and applied for this, this grant and ended up getting it. Um, and so it funded a, two years of my research and allowed me to put together a conference. And so I organized a conference. This was also must have been the end of my second year. I organized a conference on the allure of violence. And I brought together... Uh, like social scientists, Paul Bloom came and gave a talk, uh, Alan Fisk came and gave a talk. Um, and then I also had practitioners. So I had a guy, uh, here at Columbia college, Chicago, who's a, um, I guess like a fight it's like a theater theatrical fighting instructor. Um, so he came and he gave a demonstration and talked about white people are interested in theatrical violence. I had an artist come and bring one of his sculptures and talk about why he creates violent art. And then I had you know, Paul Bloom come and talk about dehumanization. And I had Alan Fisk come and talk about 
why violence is often morally motivated. Um, so instead of dehumanizing people, why we often moralize them in order to be violent towards them. And, and all these perspectives about why people are interested in violence. Um, and that's kind of what started me on this path. Um, I don't know if you want to stop there. And <laughs> there's a lot, there's, there's like a long thread to this. I don't know if you want to stop there or if you want me to keep going. But. No, that's, I, I want you to keep going. I'm, I'm, I'm following along. That's, that's, that's okay. incredible. I love this. So I started out with this violent stuff and I, my first big project, my PhD was this eye tracking study that I did as a part of this grant. Uh, and I did this eye tracking study to see where people were looking uh, when they looked at violent things. I thought maybe that could tell me something about what they were finding interesting or at least how they determined if something was violent or not violent. And so I would show people images of, you know, friendly interactions and violent interactions and sort of ambiguous interactions. And I would track where they looked while they looked at the images and I would ask them to describe what they saw. And so I was, what I was trying to do was link together what they were seeing with what they were saying to try to understand how they were creating meaning out of these images. And that, that was kind of my first big project with that. And then at the same time I was doing this, I went to my first uh, conference, which was a human behavior and evolution society conference. It was in, uh, it was in Boise, Idaho that year. And I, Around this time, I started looking for similar, I was looking at similar research ideas and I'd landed, I was still interested in fear and why people were interested in scary things. And so I started Googling who was doing research on that and I wasn't finding a lot. So I thought, ah, this can be like my niche, right? And then I came across this guy, Matthias Clazen, who had already done all these studies on why people love fear. Um, and so I contacted him and I was like, hey, I really want to do this. You're the only person that I see who's doing this research would you want to chat sometime about it? And it turns as it turns out, we were both going to HBES in like the next month or two. And so I said, yeah, let's just meet at HBES and we'll chat. So I met him there. Um, we talked about, you know, the science of horror uh, all week long. And then he said, why don't you come to, so he's from Denmark. He said, why don't you come to Denmark this fall? I do this haunted house study. You could come and be a part of this. Uh, and so of course I said, yes, I skipped all of my classes that that quarter at Chicago and just went to Denmark for like a month. Um, did this really cool haunted house study with him and some of his, his researchers. And we were studying why people play with fear. So we were studying, um, trying to understand if we could predict, you know, who would have fun during a scary interaction based on facial expressions from trap cameras in the haunted house, uh, as well as physiological signatures. So things like heart rate or heart rate variability, um, and, and sort of exit interviews with these people to see what they thought was fun and what they thought was scary. And so that was kind of this second side project. So I had this one on violence going on, and then I had now this one on fear and why people play with fear going on. And so I'd done a few of those. And then uh, at some point, I think maybe about a year later, I was talking with my advisor about all these projects and trying to figure out what was my PhD dissertation going to be on. And I was describing all of these projects to him and he said, well, that, that sounds like morbid curiosity. And I was like, yeah, you're right. This is kind of all of these things separately are touching on different aspects of morbid curiosity. And so I started, I guess, combining those. And then I, and then I, uh, I guess started studying morbid curiosity proper. So I did this study that I published recently on, it's a big four study paper on the psychology of morbid curiosity. Um, where I tried to take some of these insights I had learned from the violence study and from the playing with fear study uh, and try to construct this, I guess, niche of 
the psychology of morbid curiosity. So why people are interested in violence and fear and dangerous people and body violations and all these other uh, strange things to see if there was like a link in between them, right? To see if they were, there were commonalities in between them. Yeah, man, that's so cool. That's that's so crazy how how well you uh, positioned all of that. And in, in both 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 of it's not just like, oh, here's this insight. I'm going to like plot my way there. Like it was literally you being like, what's interesting? What are the opportunities that I have in front of me? And taking that uh, at every step along the way and then just being very conscientious about um, you know, sort of starting to to put that together in a in a coherent way. That's super cool. I think it was also, yeah, I, I you know, I'd come this far in my you know in my education and I was very stubborn about wanting to study what I want to study and not what, you know, whatever my advisor was studying or what and luckily my advisor was very open to that. He's very open to yes, study whatever you want. Here's what I'm doing, but like study whatever you want, do whatever you are interested in, as long as it's broadly related to human behavior. Um, and so, yeah, I kind of just followed what I thought was interesting rather than, um, I guess what the literature was saying that was, was interesting or what was being published on the most. And, you know, there's some downsides to that. It's hard to get published sometimes when you're not writing about whatever the hot topic at the moment is. Um, it's hard to get grants when you're not writing about whatever the hot topic at the moment is. So I was, I was fortunate that I ended up like the getting this, uh, grant my second year helped me out a lot actually. Um, and it was actually a faculty grant. So I think I actually had to, I wrote it up and I think I had to put it under my advisor's name. Um, but that, that helped me out a lot because it gave me some, it gave some legitimacy to what I was doing. Um, and so when I applied to other stuff, it, uh, made it, made it look like I knew what I was doing. Even if I, even if I didn't know what I was doing, it made it look like I knew what I was doing. Um, but yeah, it's been difficult sometimes to, you know, figure out where to publish this stuff because there's not like a lot of the work I do is not traditional social psych. I'm not trained in psychology at all. And so that's where your power comes from. Well, maybe, maybe <laughs> I, I, you know, it takes yeah. a lot of, I, I I'm, I'm applying to academic jobs, right. This, this season and writing up my, my statements, uh, it's, you know, it takes a lot. Of, I think I have to do a lot of convincing that <laughs> even though I don't have a degree in psychology, I'm, I promise I, I work in psychology. Like I do work in psychology. It's just, I take a bit of a, you know, a different approach to it than, than most people applying to those jobs. Yeah. One thing that strikes me as really cool is all of this in the context of being a, a first gen, you know, college and graduate student. Um, because I feel like for, uh, you know, graduate students, which, you know, in, in general come from lots of different backgrounds, not all of them, you know, not, I wouldn't even say most graduate students necessarily come from an academic background, ever, but there's like, kind of like a little bit of preciousness about, uh, you know, putting together your topic and what you're going to do and, and, you know, all, all this sort of stuff, myself included, where you can kind of like, uh, treat it as this kind of, I don't know, this, this, this bigger thing and that, that it really is that sort of stuff. And it strikes me that you've taken a very kind of just, uh, I'm going to do the work. I'm going to do it well. Uh, and you're seeing the benefits of that in this really cool way. Uh, and, yeah. and, and not making anything bigger than it is. It's just like, Oh, what's the, what's the thing in front of me? What's the most interesting thing? What's the opportunity? And just being really serious, being really diligent about that. And that strikes me as, as, as super cool. Yeah. I think, I think actually in that sense, being a first generation student worked to my benefit because I, had to figure a lot of things out myself. And so, which meant taking a lot of 
risks, like reaching out to people I didn't know or applying to things I didn't think I was qualified for or whatever. So now as a grad student, that's helped me out a lot. So like reaching out to my Danish collaborator, I just sort of cold emailed him when I saw that he was doing what I wanted to do um, or applying to grants that I was <laughs> not even eligible for hardly. Um, and, you know, a lot of those didn't work out, but some of them did. Uh, or applying to U Chicago, you know, from not having a, <laughs> in a different department than what I even had a degree in. Um, so I think it just came down to being willing to, uh, you know, take, take risks that, that weren't all that risky. It was just like, you know, the chances of me getting it are not very good, but if you do enough of them, you know, you're, you're bound to, to get a few things. Um, and then once you get a few, you know, once you get a grant or two grants, or once you publish a paper or two papers or whatever, that builds on it very quickly because it builds this sort of sense of legitimacy to what you're doing a little bit. So I want to talk about the book that you're working on. Uh, yeah. the, the working title was uh, Morbidly Curious, The Science Behind Our Fascination with the Mysterious and Macabre, uh, 2023 yeah. expected uh, publication yeah. date. But this is like, you know, one of those things that it's like, you don't get, as a PhD student, you don't get, a, you know, Penguin Random House book deal, especially with, you know, Brockman as your agent by accident. That's a... Uh, I mean, I'm sure that there's whatever story behind it, but that's like some, that's some seriously productive shit there, man. Good, good for you. Very, very impressive. And I want to hear what was, was that something that you were like, oh, I want to write a trade book. I want to um, tell this story, uh, the scientific story of, of morbid curiosity in this broader, to, to a broader audience. How, how did that come about for you? Um. <laughs> So actually, there there is a lot. You know, there's a. I, I definitely believe that that people get things from hard work, but you know, the hard work only comes when opportunities are presented. And so, a lot of this has just been kind of trying to take advantage of things when I when I see them. So, this book would not would not have been written would not have been uh, the contract wouldn't have been signed if the pandemic hadn't happened. Mm. Uh, so the pandemic has been really bad, I think, for most researchers um, because it makes it difficult to work, makes it difficult, you know, if you have kids or family. For me, it's actually been a huge, it's like made my career more than anything else that I've done. Um, so when the, when the pandemic first started in March of uh, 2020, uh, I, was on, I was on Twitter and this science journalist for a new scientist had asked this question to my, my Danish collaborator, Matthias. Uh, Do you think that horror fans are dealing with the pandemic better because um, you know, they're used to scary things? And I'd seen this and I'd commented on it and said, uh, Matthias, we should study this. We should like do a study on this. And so we did, we did a study on it. And uh, I didn't really think the study would get much traction. I didn't, you know, it was, it was a fun study. Uh, we had this idea that maybe people who uh, played with scary things um, would, would be better equipped to deal with real world scary things. I mean, animals do this, right? So uh, when, when animals are, are young, they do a lot of play fighting and this kind of preps them for uh, when they're, when they encounter dangerous things as adults, right? It preps their uh, sort of their motor skills, but also in some ways um, their predictive ability, how to, how to predict what an enemy is going to do or what a, uh, a fighting partner is going to do. And so we thought maybe something similar could be going on, but more at like an emotion regulation level for humans. So if I'm used to uh, engaging with something scary and sort of regulating my fear and, and, um, sitting through that scary experience, or if it's a haunted house, like making it through that experience, uh, telling myself I can do it and, and, and showing myself that I can do it, 
then maybe when I experience uh, something scary in the real world that's that's not in a play context, I'll be a little more, I'll, I'll be a little better equipped to deal with that mentally. Um, and it was kind of a stretch, I think, but it was an interesting idea that Matthias had thought about for a while. It was an idea that I think was probably right. And so he and I and a couple of other researchers got together and did this study, and we basically just asked people um, – how much they liked different genres of movies. So we said, how much do you like movies in general? You know, it's like a control. So we controlled for that in all of our models. And then we asked them, you know, how much of a fan are you of romance or of horror? Or we even went into some subgenres like supernatural horror or uh, apocalyptic or zombie movies. And then we asked about comedy. We asked about action movies, lots of different sort of genres of movies. And then we needed a way to assess their psychological resili resilience uh, during the pandemic. And there are tons of, of psychological resilience scales out there. Uh, and, and none of us were experts at the time on, on resilience at all. And so we kind of looked through all these and there weren't really any that were good for um, an event that was ongoing, right? A lot of these were some event happened. Now, how are you dealing with the effects of that? So, you know, maybe there was a hurricane or some other natural disaster that happened. How are you dealing with the effects of that? Or you were in a car wreck. How are you dealing with the effects of that? But there was nothing for this like long-term, ongoing uh, degree of uncertainty that people were experiencing in the first few months of the pandemic. And so what we did is we took the items from a lot of validated scales that we thought did tap into or did apply to those long-term effects and created a few items of our own and tried to create this resilience scale that was aimed more at uh, long-term events. And in this case, we made it specific to COVID because we were studying you know, the effects of of COVID on resilience. And so we, we did the scale, we, you know, put it in the study, we validated it. Um, and basically what we found were that people who were horror fans were scoring higher on this resilience scale. They were saying that they were dealing with the pandemic better. Um, and so we wrote up this paper, we published it. I didn't think it would like, we thought it was fun and interesting, but didn't really think it would be, it would blow up, but it did end up blowing up. Um, so I, you know, spent like, I don't know, months doing interviews like every week, <laughs> Uh, on this. I think people were very sick of negative COVID information and they wanted some like fun, positive COVID information. And so they <laughs> latched onto this story. Um, and so it, it made the media rounds. Um, and then I got contacted by a guy here in Chicago who works for the Chicago Tribune and he wanted to write a profile uh, for me for the Tribune. And so I went uh, to this really creepy antique store downtown and we chatted for a while about what I did and about this study and just morbid curiosity in general. And he wrote up this profile and he published it in the Tribune. And I think it was published online first. Um, and I was, I was actually in Denmark when it was published. I was in Denmark doing haunted house research when it was published. And um, I found out that it had done really well, I guess, online. And so when the Sunday edition of the print paper came out, uh, I was on the front page, like at the top corner on the front page above the fold, you know, and then on the entertainment section, I was like the entire picture. I was the cover of the entertainment section. Uh, so obviously, it's a huge deal for the Tribune. And I had no idea this happened. I was in Denmark. And someone sent me a photo. I was like, did you know you're on the front page of the Tribune? <laughs> um, That's crazy. Yeah. And so after that happened, I started getting contacted by a lot of So Penguin actually contacted me. Penguin in the UK actually uh, contacted me. And was like, hey, have you thought about writing a book about morbid curiosity? And then I had a, a producer at A&E reach out. Like, hey, have you thought about doing a docuseries on morbid curiosity? So again, it just like added legitimacy to what I was doing. It didn't really, you know, it didn't do much else than that. It's just, oh, you're on the cover of the Tribune. What you're doing must be, le must be legit. Um, 
And so the book deal kind of stemmed from that. So when Penguin had reached out, I, I, I didn't have any plans to write a book. This, this is probably in maybe like November of last year. So maybe like nine months ago. Um, and so I started working with this editor Penguin and then I was talking to my friend, Rob Henderson, uh, on Twitter. I don't know if you follow yeah, no, him. Rob, I've talked to him on the show before. Yeah. Yeah. He's great. I was talking with him and, uh, we were talking about books and I was telling him about this, this, I, at the time I didn't have a book deal. I was just like, Hey, I'm talking with Penguin about writing this book and we we're talking about agents. And he actually introduced me to Max Brockman. He's like, yeah, you should talk to Max and see if you, you know, so he email introduced me to Max Brockman. And then I started talking with Max. Uh, yeah. And then I started working with Max on the proposal and then, um, he yeah, ended up being my, being my agent for the book. That's cool. How's writing coming yeah. so far? Well, I just, I just signed the contract last month. Okay. Um, yeah. So I, I started talking to Max around maybe February or March, probably March. Um, and we worked on the proposal for, you know, a couple months or whatever. And then it went out to bidding and then, uh, ended up penguin, uh, ended up going with penguin. And, um, so, so I figured, I found out that this takes a very long time to do all of these things officially. So I didn't sign the contract until July. Um, it's going okay. I haven't done a lot of writing on it because I actually spent my summer, uh, I was working at Facebook over the summer as a, on the mental health team as a researcher. Um, and that was a full-time thing. Uh, so I actually took a break just in general from academia, just to focus on that, to see if I would enjoy that kind of thing. Um, so I haven't written much on it yet. Uh, but over the next year, I'm not doing any teaching. I'm not doing any, anything like that. So it's mostly going to be dissertation and, and book writing. Um, and then I'm also, I guess we're, I'm working on a docu-series as well now, a TV show on Morbid Curiosity. So doing some preliminary stuff for that. That's awesome. Are you going to be the, like, is it, are you, do you write it? Do you host it? Like, what is it, what is it? Yeah, it host. It would be a host. That's um, so cool. And, and, but also like as a, as a creator, I would ideally have, you know, some creative control over the writing and over what, what's being done. But, um, yeah, I, I could totally see how that's going to be super fun and you're going to be able to do so much with the image of, uh, you know, like the whatever terrorizing things you're you're contemplating, that sort of stuff, and then giving backstory on the psychological factors that, that are important in that situation. That's going to be super cool. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be really fun. That's basically it. it's going to be like uh, Anthony Bourdain's Parts Unknown, but spooky instead of with food. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, do you have preliminary places that you're planning to to shoot, or can you say what that what what you're thinking about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, the idea is to encompass kind of this so morbid curiosity is this broad spectrum of things. And so sat down with the producer that I've been working with to try to brainstorm ideas about where we could go and what we could do. So some of the things would be like um, people. There's these large societies for people who are interested in aliens. Um, one of them is called MUFON and I forget what it stands for, but it's M-U-F-O-N. And so we're going to go talk to them and see like what they do and why they do it. They have these meetings, these monthly or bi-weekly or something meetings. Um, so they'll be one of them. Uh, there's also, I think maybe an exorcism thing we're going to do in like Romania or somewhere. Uh, so some of this will be in, the, in Europe and some of this will be in the U.S., um, there's some stuff with true crime we're going to do, uh, probably go to a true crime convention and talk to some of the people there. Uh, there's going to be some stuff with, I think a psychic that we're going to do like a psychic that supposedly helps out the police solve crimes. Um, 
yeah, kind of just a mixed bag of things. I think we're going to do one at a, like a boxing match, maybe a bare knuckle boxing match and talking with the, some of the spectators, but also some boxers and promoters and talking about why, why they think people really enjoy this uh, and how it taps into morbid curiosity. Um, and also probably some ghost hunts. I don't know where yet, plenty of uh, haunted locations, um, but some ghost hunts and paranormal stuff. Uh, so yeah, kind of the, the breadth of morbid curiosity. That's trying brilliant. to add like a spice of science to it. That's so cool. Yeah. Um, I love that. I, I'm curious, since you mentioned that you're applying to faculty jobs and yeah. that you did your Facebook internship, what was the the verdict on doing, you know, something in industry versus academia? What, what were your thoughts on, what were your thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, it was, uh, so, I mean, obviously the, the, the benefits working in industry is the pay is really good. Uh, the benefits in general are really good. Uh, the hours are, are really good. I don't mind working like, you know, I know a lot of academics, uh, you know, have complaints about the hours they work in academia. Um, I mean, I tend to, I, I'm lucky enough that I study something I enjoy. And so I don't even think about it. Like I work when I need to work and don't, when I don't, you know, I don't know that I keep to a strict 40 hour schedule, but I probably don't work a lot more than 40, maybe some, some weeks where it's really busy, but then other weeks where it's not, I work less than 40, you know? Uh, at Facebook, it was very much like a 40 hour a week job, no work on weekends, you know, no pressure to work on weekends or work after hours. In fact, they encouraged you very much to not do so. Um, there obviously are, uh, it was cool because it's very interdisciplinary. So I worked not very much with other researchers actually, and a lot with other, or with other researchers maybe, but not with anyone who was doing anything like what I did. Uh, I worked with engineers, I worked with marketing people, I worked with uh, you know, people who are doing qualitative work. Um, so I was like the quant person on this, on this mental health team. So one of the quant people, one of the few quant people. Um, so that part was nice. Uh, there is almost unlimited resources for what you can do. The downside was that you can't ask any question you want to ask, right? There are certain things you just can't ask, uh, especially since I was working on the mental health team, you know, you can't really ask health related questions, which makes studying mental health kind of hard. <laughs> um, so whereas in academia, you know, resources are limited, but you can ask anything you want in industry. And at least in, in the position I was in, it seemed like the opposite, like resources were almost unlimited, but you were very restricted on what you could ask and what kinds of questions you were trying to answer. Um, and so I didn't like that as much. Um, you know, I think it depends what position you're in. Some positions probably had more free reign. So there are some areas where th that area is more nascent. And so there are more open questions um, that would probably be more similar to academia in some ways. Um, and the area I was working in, it was a bit more restricted because it had to do with mental health and there are specific ways you have to ask questions. Um, and we were obviously interested in specific metrics in that case. Um, but yeah, I I'm, a, I'm, it's still in my, uh, so the, the Facebook job is still like in my realm of possibilities for the next year, but I'm also applying to some, some academic jobs, uh, to see. Or you can those. just go on to host TV shows and write books. Or yeah. Or I'll just drop the whole thing and write books and host TV shows. <laughs> that doesn't sound like a bad gig at all. <laughs> yeah. Now, I, I think I would, I would, I like academia a lot, but, uh, yeah, we'll see. There, yeah, I have a lot. I'm juggling a lot of things right now, so we'll see where the industry thing and the academia thing and the book and the TV show all kind of fall. Nice. Yeah. So I'm curious. Uh, what are what are some of your favorite books? Some of the books that have most influenced you, or ones that you're looking to in in you know 
emulating in certain ways you think about constructing your own that sort of stuff uh yeah. what are you know three to five titles that, that, that fit into to that category for you yeah i think um one of the one of the first books i read in college that i think changed my path a little bit was uh robert spolsky's book why zebras don't get ulcers um it was it was the first book i'd read that had done a good job of integrating anthropology so i, I read this maybe as a freshman or a sophomore probably a freshman um it did a good job of integrating anthropology with biology and showing how you can explain aspects of behavior with biology uh in his case with hormones um i think i think that book showed me that you can you know you don't have to you don't have to fall directly in one discipline you can kind of mix and match a little bit so it was very uh influential in my early college career for sure uh and also spolsky has a very like wonderful writing style. I'll probably go back and read some of his books as I'm writing my own uh, because he has a very kind of witty, funny, laid back way of writing without it being uh, void of, of scientific integrity. Uh, so definitely, definitely Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers was the first big book I read in college that kind of shifted my thinking. Um, another one that I read more recently in grad school was The Shape of Thought by H. Clark Barrett. So Obviously, a lot, a lot of the work I do falls some, sometimes under the realm of evolutionary psychology. Uh, and there are a lot of, I think, misunderstandings about evolutionary psychology, both, both from people who are evolutionary psychologists and people who aren't. Um, and, and Barrett's book does a good job, I think, of taking sort of the original tenets of evolutionary psychology that Tubian Cosmetis uh, wrote about back in the early 90s and sort of updating that with what we know now about um just, just advancements that have been made in the past, you know, almost three decades about genes, about, uh, cultural evolution and kind of showing how, uh, like a, mo uh, a modular mind might work or why it might work, um, based on what we know now. Uh, so I think that was really, I don't know if that one shifted my perspective a lot, but it definitely solidified a lot of things. Uh, it, it, he does a good job of bringing these disparate ideas together and solidifying them into a narrative. Um, so in that, in that sense, it, it was a, a very helpful book to read because when I was, when I was reading it, I kept thinking, oh yeah, I knew that, but I hadn't thought about it this way. And he just did a really good job of tying all these things together into a cohesive argument. Um, so that one's been really influential. Another one, uh, that I read while I was in college, I think maybe my junior or senior year in, in a biology class, actually, we read, um, the double helix by James Watson. And the reason that one was influential is it, I, I think it gave me a sense of the, the humanity that happens in science, like the human side of the scientists. And because the book is not about, I mean, it's about, you know, their discovery of the double helix, but it's also about the way they navigated the social situations that, that were involved in that. Like other people trying to uh, also discover this and how they navigated as young as at the time, very young researchers. I mean, I think, Crick was a little older, but Watson was what, like in his early twenties. Um, but Crick, I mean, Crick was only like maybe 30. I don't remember. He wasn't very old. And so basically how these young scientists navigated this new field, um, that they were trying to make groundbreaking discoveries in and how they, how they navigated, you know, uh, not <laughs> making too many enemies, but while also, um, not being stepped on themselves. Yeah, that's a, that's a great, uh, great selection of that. Yeah. Really cool. Uh, and then, so 
I'm curious to sort of talk to you at this junction, having gone through a lot of work of thinking about the structure of, of the book and sort of imagining it in your mind, but before you've actually yeah. sat down to do it. So I'm kind of yeah. curious to just touch on a couple things in, in your construction of the book proposal. And I'll be mm-hmm. interested to compare what you, uh, you know, ha- have to say now and in your sort of perspective, you know, understanding and conceptualizing what you're going to do and, and how it how it comes out and that sort of stuff. So was there anything that you thought when you sat down to first work on the proposals, like, oh, this is uh, going to be an important thing or this is going to be a, a framing that didn't quite work when you started to put those pieces together? Was, was there anything uh, that you thought was going to go in there that didn't didn't quite work? Something like that. Hmm. Is there anything I thought that was going to go in that didn't quite work? I definitely, so the proposal definitely changed uh, quite a bit throughout. I don't remember exactly how it was. It was more so, I think, the organization of it than yeah. the, than the content. Um, so the way that I had originally organized it, I think, was more how I would organize a paper, maybe like a scientific paper, um, in the sense that it started small, built big, and then you know got back small again. Uh, I like that sort of hourglass kind of picture of the way a scientific paper is written and, and, and working with Max and working with uh, also Matthias helped me a lot with organizing this proposal. I ended up structuring it in more of a um, long view to short view. So like an evolutionary view down to, uh, I don't want to say a cultural view, but like an individual. view. So actually more like Sapolsky, again, it's a big influence on like the way that I, think about writing at least. Uh, so one of his more recent books, Behave, went from, you know, I, I, can't, I can't remember which direction it started in, but I think it started in like, you know, one second before the behavior occurs to one minute before, to moments before, to hours before, to days, to years, to centuries, to millennia before. And basically he's explaining this behavior uh, from a lot of different time perspectives. And I think I'm doing a similar kind of thing, but I flipped it. So starting out with like the evolutionary origins of morbid curiosity, and then looking at it in animals and looking at it uh, historically in humans. So looking at historical examples like the Romans or the, um, the uh, executions that happened in the Middle Ages and the, the crowds those drew and the anatomical theaters that happened around the Renaissance and then moving into sort of the paranormal shift in the 18th and 19th century in the U.S. and then into true crime and into horror, modern horror. Um, and then moving into the individual. So how does this affect not just like, what does morbid curiosity look like in uh, animals and in humans and in uh, historically in the last hundred years, but also in individuals, what does it look like? Uh, so how does it affect people who have anxiety? Like why do people who are anxious seek out horror? Um, so kind of this very broad, more of a funnel than, a, than an hourglass. So definitely the structure of it changed. I don't know if the content changed too much. Um, I mean, I guess by nature of the structure changing, some of the content may be changed, but I think a lot of the stuff that I wanted to include, uh, I think is still being included. Yeah, that's- That's the nice thing about a field where like, <laughs> there's almost no research, right? I, I get to dictate a little bit what I talk about. 100%. Uh, book. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, well, I, that that I'm super excited to see what you come up with there. And I, uh, I recognize we haven't talked much about actual- the actual content of your work and what you found and that sort of stuff, which definitely two years from now when we're talking about your excellent Sapolsky-esque book that you've written, uh, we'll, we'll get more into that. But one thing that I was curious about 
So whenever I'm watching a horror movie, which I'm not an, a horror aficionado, but one thing that sort of stands out to me as just a sort of naive hypothesis is that one of the defining features of, of horror movies is uh, engagement. They're really engrossing in a way. And uh, because this really potentially traumatic thing is happening, it brings you in in uh, this sort of like full you know, full, almost visceral way that something that you may enjoy, uh, but is a little lighter, like a rom-com or whatever, doesn't necessarily do. So I'm wondering to what extent, um, you know, interest in specifically, like, I guess, horror stories and, and, and frightening narratives, um, what extent is it a function of engagement? Uh, I think that's a huge part of it, especially uh, for people who have higher anxiety. So I, I wrote a paper, it's, it's a preprint right now, but it's a big theoretical paper with a, a clinical psychologist on why why horror might actually be a, an interesting way to help people with anxiety. Uh, and one of the things we talk about is why anxious people seem to be drawn to horror. And the, the idea there is that anxious people are more likely to sort of surveil their environment for threats and when they see a threat, they latch onto it attention-wise a bit more. Um, of course, this happens for everyone, but it's amplified, you know, in anxiety. But even in someone who's not anxious, when you see something threatening on a screen, even if you know you're safe, uh, your body kind of tunes into that, right? And it draws you into the story much more, I think, than um, or with less effort. You know, it doesn't take a lot of effort to be drawn into a horror movie, whereas it might take more effort or attention to be drawn into um, a rom-com or uh maybe even an action movie in some sense uh so you can kind of like not pay attention to a horror movie and then when something bad's happening on screen you're kind of glued to it right it draws you in um and it forces you to kind of think about that situation uh a bit more than other genres do so i think i think that plays a the engagement aspect plays a huge role because humans have this attentional bias towards threat right um and so when you can make a, a movie scary it's gonna draw people in i think a bit with a bit less effort. Probably why a lot of horror movies have bad plots. They don't really need a good plot. <laughs> they don't need to engage you with the plot. There are a lot of horror movies that have good plots, but there are a lot that have really bad plots. Um, and I think it's because they rely on the scary aspect to kind of bring you in uh, a bit more. What are your favorite horror movies right now? Or all-time favorite or recent ones that you've liked? All-time favorites. I think uh, one of my favorites, I'm a big fan of zombie movies. Um, and my favorite zombie movie is probably the Dawn of the Dead remake, the 2004, the Zack Snyder one, actually, before he went on to make a bunch of superhero movies, he did uh, a Dawn of the Dead remake. I think that one's really, really well done. Um, newer movies, I really liked, uh, The Autopsy of Jane Doe. It's kind of a spooky, uh, without spoiling anything, I guess. It's kind of, it's just a very atmospheric movie. It's very scary atmosphere. Mm. Um, but it includes some jump scares. So it's not just atmospheric. It includes like those more traditional jump scares as well. Those, those two are probably the most, uh, the, the ones that come to mind the most, like for a zombie flick, kind of the, the Dawn of the Dead, and then for the more modern horror, probably the autopsy of, of Jane Doe. Huh. I'll put those, I'll put those on the list. Anyway, that's yeah. good that you like horror movies because I hear there's this interesting bit of research floating around that suggests that you might be able to handle the pandemic better if uh, right. you're engaged with uh, the, the zombie apocalypse, apocalypse uh, subgenre. So, you know, yeah. good on you, man. I'm just, uh, yeah, I'm, tr I'm trying to, uh, <laughs> I'm 
I'm trying to. I'm trying you to live. Born for the, this is this I, is what you were. You're a upbringing in Slaughterville. You're a right. you're a horror. Oh my god! It, it all comes together so beautifully. Uh, Colton, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. It's been great to to hear about your story and the cool stuff that you've been up to. And it's going to be so exciting to see all this stuff play out because you've got so many great things that are that are uh, shaping up to be super cool as you continue to develop them. So uh, it's nice to see someone. Uh, you know, who's doing a great job at all of this stuff in this, uh, uh, you know, p- particular stage of thing as, as a PhD student and everything like that. And, um, you know, it's, it's especially cool, uh, coming from a, a first gen background and, uh, you know, all, all that sort of stuff. So very cool story, very cool work. Yeah. Thank you for, uh, for talking with me about it. I haven't actually, I guess, told that story <laughs> in that way, uh, before, cause people, you know, when they, when I do podcasts or whatever, they always want to hear about the research, which is fine. Uh, I don't think I've ever been asked to tell the story of how that came about as much. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's super right. interesting to hear. So yeah. awesome, man. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. That was my conversation with Colton Scrivener. You can keep an eye out for his book. It's coming in 2023. Uh, probably have him back on to, to talk about it when it does come out, but, um, Definitely check out his work. He's looking for uh, academic positions at the moment. So if you're in a position to uh, evaluate his his, his applications there, uh, you know, hope, hope you review them positively. But uh, at any rate, um, if you want to connect with me, you can do so on Twitter at Cody Commerce or through my Substack newsletter, codycommerce.substack.com. You can also subscribe to the Cognitive Revolution podcast wherever you happen to be listening. So... Uh, Thank you for listening this week. I really appreciate it. And I'll be back next week with another episode of Cognitive Revolution.